0: Welcome, everybody. Welcome to our weekly Bible study. It's good to have everyone with us. We are we're going to start a study tonight called The Temple in God's Own Heart. But let's pray real quick, Lord. We thank you for your word, this opportunity to study, and just ask that you'd open our hearts to understand your word better. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. And so while you're getting to your seats, I will... I will start by. um, Well, I was reading through uh, Samuel and into Kings. And if you haven't done that in a while, 2 Samuel is about David. And then when you get into 1 Kings, it's the transition of the monarchy into Solomon. And I've read it before. And I know I've heard it preached. um, I've heard it preached on, or, or, or at least parts of it before. But this time out, as I was reading it, I came across a section that, well, it didn't read the way I expected or, or how I had remembered. And so that prompted the study. And so if you have your Bibles with you, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. That's where we'll start. We'll start by reading the section that got my attention. And from there, I think it'll be a pretty interesting study. Um, let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. And it came to pass, when the king, David, sat in his house, and the Lord had given him rest round about from all his enemies, that the king said unto Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar. But the ark of God dwelleth within curtains. And David said to the king, Go, do all that is in thine heart, for the Lord is with thee. And it came to pass that night that the word of the Lord came unto Nathan, saying, Go, and tell my servant David, Thus saith the Lord, Shalt thou build me a house for me to dwell in? Whereas I have not dwelt in any house since the time that I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt, even unto this day, but have walked in a tent and in a tabernacle, in all places where I have walked with all the children of Israel, spake I a word with any of the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to feed my people Israel, saying, Why build ye not me a house of cedar? Now therefore, so shalt thou say unto my servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheepcote from following the sheep, to be ruler over My people, over Israel. And I was with thee, whithersoever thou went, and have cut off all thine enemies out of thy sight, and have made thee a great name, like unto the name of the great men that are in the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for My people Israel, and will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own, and move no more, neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them anymore as before time and as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies. Also, the Lord telleth thee that He will make thee a house. Okay, so, so we'll stop there at, uh, at verse 11. So the first thing I realized when I read this was that Nathan... God's anointed prophet, at first he responded to David that he should do all that was in his heart. Which it appears to me that the Lord then clarified that night with a vision to Nathan. Now we know that Nathan was a bona fide prophet, right? Because, I mean, right here God spoke to him and commanded him that he should bring the word of the Lord to David. But it appears that Nathan was a bit carried away in the, in the moment. If, if you, in the context of the story, David had just brought the ark into Jerusalem, and he pitched a tent for it there on Mount Moriah, which is what we now call the Temple Mount. And he had just concluded a grand festival, right, where he, he memorialized his position now as the undisputed king of, of not just Judah, but of all Israel. And so it seems that even God's prophet was, was kind of swept up in the high spirits of the moment, and he was just going along with David's desire, saying, do whatever's in your heart, the Lord is with you. But the Lord stepped in to clarify. And so let's pick it up again in, in verse 12, 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. The Lord says to Nathan to tell David, And when thy days be fulfilled, David, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seat after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom forever. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity... I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak unto David. Okay, so now... In reading this, I noticed that there is no command here regarding Solomon by name and him building the Lord a house. But there is a reference to a man of David's seed building a house for my name and that the Lord will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And and as I read, I was just certain that the Bible said God had told David specifically that he was not supposed to build him a house. That's how I remembered it. And I thought I had read that God said specifically that Solomon would build him a house by name. I thought I had read that in the Bible. But it wasn't here in the text here. Now, I remember that there's a parallel, uh, there's a parallel account of the same story in 1 Chronicles. And so we'll go there, and you can turn there if you'd like, to First Chronicles 17. And we'll read that in just a moment. But before we do, I had to answer some questions about whether this was a Solomonic prophecy or a Messianic prophecy, or was it what people call a dual application prophecy? Um, so let's look back at uh, here in the sections of 2 Samuel 7.13. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So it's commonly taught that this is a dual application prophecy with a short-term and then a long-term fulfillment. Solomon and his temple being the short-term throne and house or house and throne. And then redeemed Israel and Jesus Christ being the long-term house and throne. And I can see that. I mean, I get that. Except for the prophecy of Solomon's throne being established forever. Uh, David's kingdom was divided shortly after Solomon's death. And Jeroboam, I mean, at the very least, Jeroboam diluted the Davidic succession of of Solomon's throne. And from the Babylonian captivity to the birth of Christ, there doesn't appear to have been a continuous succession of the Solomonic line. I mean, not even over just Judah. And of course, there's no one on the throne today. Now, perhaps God just doesn't count all these disruptions. Uh, like he said to David, you know, he only, he only counts the fact that um, Jesus was a descendant of David and, and this establishes David's throne forever. That God can count it that way and it's his prerogative to count it that way. But that would suggest that the prophecy here in 1 Samuel 7 was primarily about jesus and 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 not primarily about solomon and maybe not even about about solomon at all maybe not even about solomon at all now let's go back and look at the next verse first samuel 7 i'm sorry second samuel right second samuel 7 14 where the lord says to david i will be his father talking about David's seed. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. So I read this and I'm thinking this is a messianic prophecy and maybe it's a dual application prophecy. And of course we can understand how a prophecy of Solomon could include references to him committing iniquity, right? Because Solomon certainly did. Um, Although, I will say, and I've searched a good bit this past week, I can find no record of God chastening Solomon in his lifetime. Certainly not with stripes or with the rod. I can find no record of that. At least not during his lifetime recorded in the Bible. But regardless of Solomon, if we read this as a prophecy of Jesus... Um, even if it's a short-term, long-term, and we want to apply it both to Solomon and Jesus, how can we apply this to Jesus? How could we apply a prophecy about Jesus that includes references to Him committing iniquity and then being chastened, right? Because if you want to turn to 2 Corinthians 5.21, we know that Jesus never sinned. And, And so on the, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, a thing is established, right? And so I'm going to give you more than two or three. How do we know Jesus never sinned? Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, Paul tells us, He, the Father, hath made Him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin. So Paul says He knew no sin. 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 in the 21st verse, Peter says Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps who did no sin. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us in the 15th verse, Hebrews 4, 15, for he we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin." The author of Hebrews also tells us in the ninth chapter and in the 28th verse, "...Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for Him shall He appear the second time without sin unto salvation." So it's well established that Jesus Christ did not sin during his life on earth where he came in the likeness of sinful flesh, but he was not sinful. So how can a prophecy about Jesus include a reference to sin and chastening? Well, Turn back to 2 Corinthians 5.21, if you're still there, because let's consider that passage and what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Paul says, For He hath made Him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And then further on in, in 2 Peter chapter 2, where we just were, if you read up into verse 24, 2 Peter 2, 24, Peter says, Who it who his own self bear our sins in his body on the tree. He bear our sins in his own body on the tree. That we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye are healed. So these verses, these scriptures indicate that God did not just positionally assign the sins of the world to Jesus, but that Jesus bore full and true responsibility for having committed them he took them upon Himself literally, for real, becoming sin, Paul says. So that on the tree, as Peter said, on the tree, He was found by God upon the tree as having committed iniquity, as we just read in the Second Samuel prophecy. And God did chasten Him with the rod and the stripes of the children of men, right? At His trial... And on the cross, but God's mercy did not depart from him. And so just to ponder that, because I've always understood that Jesus died for my sins and Jesus took the sins of the world upon him, but I just hadn't really pondered the reality of Jesus was found to be sin while he was on the tree, Anyway, it's it's just really deep and profound and moving that it was that real. This wasn't God just pretending. And it wasn't Jesus just making like he sinned. It was way, way deeper and more profound than that. And then, of course, back to 2 Samuel, Jesus Christ will, in fact, has, in fact, established David's throne forever just as the prophecy states. And so, with all of this, I judge this 2 Samuel 7 scripture to be prophesying primarily of Jesus, perhaps secondarily to Solomon, but perhaps not about Solomon at all. And the house God speaks of that we just read about It's not a house like the one that David has in mind. So as we read, God spent the entire first part of the passage making clear that he never desired a house of cedar. He never asked anybody for a house of cedar. And after stating that he never asked for a house, he directs David's attention not to anything about building a house, but to what he's done for David, he says, I took you from the sheepcote, I made you a ruler, I gave you a great name. And then he goes on in verses 10 and 11 to tell David that I will appoint a place, and that in fact, I will build you a house. And so this is a prophecy of what I've done for you and what I will do for you. And I, at the time, I'm sure David understood. I know, I know he did. Now, perhaps not perfectly, but he understood at the time what God was talking about. And while God had already declared David as a man after his own heart, and I'm convinced that God has already determined at this point in history to forgive all of David's sins, um... The scriptures here and later ones that we'll study are going to reveal, despite the fact that God has already basically graced David out, we're going to see in the scriptures, the scriptures are going to reveal the quality of David's walk with the Lord. And the quality of David's walk with the Lord is going to be expressed in his actions regarding the building of the temple now when i began this study i was trying to answer the question of whether or not the building of the temple was in god's will or outside of god's will that was the question that had come into my mind and we'll study that out and and we'll see what the scripture says but what i found was a a much larger truth in that we can learn a good deal about walking with the Lord and walking by faith by better understanding this story. And for me being a believer today, that's the thing I want to understand. I want to understand more perfectly. How do I walk by faith? And so I pray that this study will, will help me and help you to understand better, How do we walk by faith? How do we know what's in God's heart? I want to be a man after God's own heart. So how do we do that? All right. Now let's turn to 1 Chronicles forward a bit. 1 Chronicles chapter 17. Pass 1 and 2 Kings into 1 Chronicles chapter 17. 1 Chronicles 17, verse 1. 1 Chronicles 17, 1. This is where we find a parallel account of the Lord's revelation to David by the prophet Nathan regarding the building of the temple, okay? So let's just read it. 1 Chronicles 17, verse 1. This uh, is... Now it came to pass as David sat in his house that David said unto Nathan the prophet, Lo, I dwell in a house of cedars, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord remains under curtains. Then Nathan said unto David, Do all that is in thine heart, for God is with thee. Right? So again, Nathan is uh, kind of just going along with whatever the king is saying he desires. Uh, Verse 3, And it came to pass the same night that the word of God came to Nathan saying, Go, And tell David my servant, thus saith the Lord, thou shalt not build me a house to dwell in. Okay, so there it is. There's the passage that I was certain was in the Bible that David was told specifically by God that he was not to build the Lord a house, right? So now let's continue starting at verse five. For I have not dwelt in a house since the day that I brought up Israel unto this day, but have gone from tent to tent and from one tabernacle to another. Wheresoever I have walked with all Israel, spake I a word to any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to feed my people, saying, Why have ye not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore thus shalt thou say unto my servant David, Thus saith the Lord God of hosts, I took thee from the sheepcote, even from following the sheep that thou should be ruler over my people Israel. And I have been with thee wherever thou hast walked, and have cut off all thine enemies from before thee, and have made thee a name like the name of the great men that are in the earth. So again, as we saw earlier, God recites all he's done for David without making a mention of anyone building a house. And so we pick it up in verse 9. Also, I will ordain a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, and they shall dwell in their place, and shall be moved no more, neither shall the children of wickedness waste them any more, as at the beginning and since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. Moreover, I will subdue all thine enemies. Furthermore, I tell thee that the Lord will build thee a house, and it shall come to pass, when thy days be expired, that thou must go to be with thy fathers, that I will raise up thy seed after thee, which shall be of thy sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me a house. He shall build me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. And I will not take my mercy away from him as I took it from him that was before thee, but I will settle him in mine house and in my kingdom forever. And his throne shall be established forevermore. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak unto David. So in this parallel account, let's notice that the prophesied seed after thee, in verse 11, I will raise up thy seed after thee, which shall be of thy sons. Not your son, plural. Now, this could be taken as God saying He's going to choose one of David's sons, but it reads to me like this seed will be of David's sons, meaning coming from more than one son, from a lineage of sons, because it immediately switches right back from the plural to the singular, which shall be of thy sons, and I will establish his kingdom. So, again, primarily a prophecy about Jesus Christ and of the house that God will build for David, that house being built by the seed of David's sons, that seed being Jesus Christ, and that house not being a temple as David was thinking about a temple. Um, But more importantly, after both sections... The, the Second Samuel section recitation, the First Chronicles a parallel recitation of the facts. After both sections, after David receives God's word from Nathan, David then prays to the Lord. Okay, let's let's read David's prayer. We're going to go back to Second Samuel. Back to Second Samuel chapter seven. And we're going to pick it up in verse 16. I'm sorry, we're going to pick it up in verse 18. 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 18. And David the king came and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that thou hast brought me hitherto? And yet this was a small thing in thine eyes, O God, for thou hast also spoken of thy servant's house for a great while to come and hast regarded me according to the estate of a man of high degree, O Lord God. What can David speak more to thee for the honor of thy servant? For thou knowest thy servant, O Lord, for thy servant's sake and according to thine own heart hast thou done all this greatness in making known all these great things. O Lord, there is none like Thee, neither is there any God beside Thee, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And what one nation in earth is like Thy people Israel, whom God went to redeem to be His own people, to make Thee a name of greatness and terribleness by driving out nations from before Thy people whom Thou hast redeemed out of Egypt? For Thy people Israel didst Thou make Thine own people forever, and Thou, Lord, became their God. Therefore now, Lord, let the thing that thou hast spoken concerning thy servant and concerning his house be established forever. And do as thou hast said. Let it even be established that thy name may be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is the God of Israel, even a God to Israel. And let the house of David thy servant be established before thee For thou, O my God, hast told thy servant that thou wilt build him a house. Therefore thy servant hath found in his heart to pray before thee. And now, Lord, thou art God and hast promised this goodness unto thy servant. Now therefore let it please thee to bless the house of thy servant that it may be before thee forever. For thou blessed, O Lord, and it shall be blessed forever. So in the prayer... David praises God, and he thanks God, and he concedes that his kingdom, David's kingdom, will be established before God, and he remembers all the great deeds that God has performed for Israel, and then he magnifies God, and he accepts the promise. He he accepts the promise that God will build him a house, and David then humbly confesses that all he has to offer is his prayer. But because God has said it's going to be, you said it shall be, Lord, it shall be. And David knows it shall be. And he accepts the blessing and he believes God and he believes that it's all true. Um, I think I just read the Chronicles. Sorry. That makes sense that I would have done it that way. I just read the Second Chronicles. So now we're going to go back. I was going to go back to the 2nd Samuel, which I'll do now. It's very close, almost verbatim. It's almost verbatim, but not quite. And so I'm going to read this from my Bible because I got them out of order here. And this is a smaller font. Um, So 2nd Samuel, starting in uh, 2nd Samuel 7 18. Then went King David in and sat before the Lord. And he said, "Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that thou hast brought me hitherto?" And this was yet a small thing in thy sight, O Lord God, but thou hast spoken also of thy servant's house for a great while to come. And in this the, and is this the manner of man, O Lord God? And what can David say more unto thee? For thou, Lord God, knowest thy servant. For thy word's sake, and according to thine own heart, hast thou done all these great things to make thy servant know them. Wherefore, thou art great, O Lord God, for there is none like thee, neither is there any God beside thee, according to all that we have seen and heard with our ears. And what nation in the earth is like thy people, even like Israel, whom God went to redeem for a people to himself, and to make him a name, and and to do for you great things and terrible for thy land before thy people, which thou redeem to thee from Egypt, from the nations and their gods. For thou hast confirmed to thyself thy people Israel to be a people unto thee forever, and thou, Lord, art become their God. And now, O Lord God, the word that thou hast spoken concerning thy servant and concerning his house, establish it forever, and do as thou hast said. And let thy name be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is the God over Israel. And let the house of thy servant David be established before thee. For thou, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, has revealed to thy servant, saying, I will build thee an house. Therefore hath thy servant found in his heart to pray this prayer unto thee. And now O Lord God thou art that God and thy words be true and thou hast promised this goodness unto thy servant therefore now let it please therefore now let it please thee to bless the house of thy servant that it may continue forever before thee <clears throat> for thou O Lord hast spoken it and with thy blessing let the house of thy servant be blessed forever So there we have the prayer of David recounted twice uh, in 1 Chronicles and in uh, 2 Samuel. And in both passages, we see in the prayer there's something we don't see in the prayer and there's something we don't hear. David does not ask for a sign. He doesn't swear an oath he doesn't offer anything he just praises god and gives him glory and declares that he believes him if you've been with us for a while in other studies that we've done we've seen everyone from abraham to moses to gideon ask for a sign god makes them a promise he offers them grace the first thing they do is they ask for a sign In the wilderness, we heard the whole nation of Israel offer up their obedience to the law in response to the favor that God freely offered them. But not here with David. David didn't ask for a sign. He didn't swear an oath. He didn't offer anything, but he believed. And so David becomes the man that God has always been searching for. Samuel you'll remember told King Saul in 1st Samuel chapter 13 when God had decided to take the kingdom from Saul Samuel told Saul in 1st Samuel 13:14 but now thy kingdom Saul shall not continue the Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart and that was David In this prayer, in both accounts, and there are just very slight variations, right? Um, But both accounts are clear that David understands that God offers these blessings. Why? Because it was in his heart to do so. David understands and believes what's in God's heart. So turn to Acts chapter 13. And I'll reiterate, David doesn't offer anything of his doing. He doesn't say, thank you for the promises, Lord. I'm going to none of that. He doesn't do any of that. He offers only belief and thanks and praise. That's all. And so now let's go to Paul. In Acts chapter 13, Paul is offering an exhortation to the men in the synagogue of the Jews in Antioch. This is about a 1,000 years later, a 1,000 years after David. And Paul in the synagogue, after recounting Jewish history from the calling of Abraham to the Exodus, to the Judges, and to Saul, Paul then comes to David and he confirms what Samuel said to Saul about David. In Acts chapter 13, verse 22. In Acts 13, 22, Paul writes that the Lord said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. Of this man's seed, says Paul, hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior Jesus that's acts 13 22 and 23 so God was in David's time and in Paul's time and has always been looking for men after his own heart God has been seeking men who want to know his heart and believe him and David proved to be one of those men and so how about you Do you believe? The desire of God's heart has been revealed to us, especially us. We are at the end of the age. The full revelation of God's word, I believe, has been revealed to us. More so than it was to David and Solomon. And if you want to go to Ephesians chapter 1, we'll see... That God has revealed, to, or yeah, God has revealed to us what's been in His heart since before the foundation of the world. Paul was able to reveal things about the heart of God that weren't revealed to any other people. And in Ephesians chapter one verse four, Paul tells us that before the foundation of the world, God chose us in Him in Christ that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. And for us to be that people, He needs us to believe. To believe in the Savior, Jesus Christ, that He's Lord. He's the the Lord who died and, and rose again to save us. He just needs us to believe that. And then if you believe that, God will take it from there. He'll make you more than a conqueror. He'll make your name great for the sake of his own name, just like he did for David. Trust him, believe him, get to know him, get to know his story better and better every day. And then he'll do things in you that you wouldn't even be able to offer, that you wouldn't even think to offer. He'll build you a house. And and then notice in Paul's statement here in Acts chapter 13, interestingly, when we get back to the question of the prophecy from Nathan regarding David's seed, well, when Paul refers to David being a man after God's own heart, he associates the promised seed not with Solomon but with Christ. And I think David recognized what God was saying in the moment at that time. Maybe not perfectly, but he understood and he certainly believed. And as I've said, I'm I'm convinced that God had already graced David out and God was not going to condemn David after this, even if David sinned. And, and, and we know David did sin after this. He sinned terribly. And so this begs the question, under the Abrahamic covenant, or, or what people call the Mosaic covenant or the Mosaic law, I'm sorry, not the Abrahamic covenant, under the Mosaic covenant, under the covenant of law that Israel lived under, did a Jew have to keep the law to be justified? Well, the short answer is yes, but there's more to it than that. Do believers today have to keep believing in order to stay justified? Well, the short answer is no, but there's more to it than that. There's a lot more to it than that. And hopefully this study will illuminate both questions. So we get hung up in theology and and being correct dispensationally and and defending our theological position. But there's way more to it than that. I want to seek what's in God's heart. I want all of us to do that. And that's what I hope we'll learn a little more about in this study, more than any specific theological position. Not, Not that those aren't important, but there's There's more to it than that. All right, so let's return to David's walk with the Lord in regards to building the temple. Okay, so we saw clearly in 1 Chronicles 17 that God commanded David specifically, he said, thou shalt not build me a house, right? We'll all agree that was in the text. And we saw how David believed God. And after this, as you read the rest of the book, there were more battles and David defeated all of his enemies. They're all listed by city and by name and by king, all the ones David de- defeated. And he killed all four sons of the giant and he established the kingdom firmly in his hand. And then for reasons that aren't specifically cited, but, but that we may, may be able to understand, and discern as we study a little later on the anger of the lord was kindled against israel and this is later this is in second samuel 24 with the parallel being in first chronicles 21 and and you can turn to first chronicles 21 i'm sorry is it first yeah first chronicles if it's 2 Chronicles, please correct me. I believe it's 1 Chronicles 21. We'll know in a second. So there's this, this discomfort between God and Israel and this disconnect moved David's heart away from the Lord and David took a census of his armies. You remember this story? David took a census and this offended God. And according to 1 Chronicles twenty-one fifteen. In fact, I'll just go to it myself. 1 Chronicles 21, 15. 1 Chronicles 21, 15. And God sent an angel unto Jerusalem, right? God sent an angel unto Jerusalem to destroy it. And as he was destroying, the Lord beheld, and he repented him of the evil. And he said to the angel that destroyed, it is enough. Stay now thine hand. And the angel of the Lord stood by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And David lifted up his eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord stand between the earth and heaven, having having a drawn sword in his hand stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David, with the elders of Israel, who were clothed in sackcloth, fell upon their faces. And David said unto God, Is it not I that commanded the people to be numbered? Even I it is that have sinned and done evil indeed. But as for these sheep, what have they done? Let thine hand, I pray thee, O Lord my God, be upon me and upon my father's house, but not on thy people, that they should be plagued. And this is just a remarkable picture when we think of Jesus on the cross demanding that God punish him for the sins he committed. Jesus said, is it not me? It's not these innocent people. It's me, and Jesus demanded God's punishment. And he insists that the people are innocent. So this is just a picture of that with David. Then the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up and set up an altar unto the Lord in the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And David went up. And now let's skip ahead to verse 26. And David built there an altar unto the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings and called upon the Lord. And he answered him from heaven by fire upon the altar of burnt offering. And the Lord commanded the angel and he put up his sword again into the sheep thereof. And David saw that the Lord had answered him in the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Then, as we read the story, David began sacrificing there regularly on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem at the altar he had reared up after the pestilence. Prior to this, the tabernacle of the Lord and the altar of sacrifice, this is the tabernacle that Moses made, by the way. That tabernacle and that altar of burnt offerings, they were in the high place at Gibeon. But David, we're told, couldn't go there to inquire of God because he was afraid. And so we realize now in the story that David has gone from knowing God's heart and offering that perfect prayer to being afraid to inquire of God. By the time David called for a census it's apparent that he was not walking in the will of the Lord. Or, as Paul would say to us, he was not walking by the Spirit. Now, David didn't have access to the Holy Spirit all the time like we do, but he could walk with the Lord just like we can walk by the Spirit. Well, in between David's prayer and his sacrifice on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, we read... In 2 Samuel, from chapters 8 all the way through chapters 21, we read about not only David's victories in the war, all the wars and the killing of the giants, but we also read of his sins of adultery and murder with Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite. We read about his failure to judge the sin of Amnon against Tamar and the murder of Amnon by his son Absalom, the murder of his son... Amnon by his son, Absalom, and then Absalom's rebellion and his death, and then the rebellion of Sheba, which exacerbated the social tensions and divisions that had already existed between Judah and the other 10 tribes. So turn to 1 Chronicles 21, Um, and so now here we are in the story, and even though David made the sacrifice on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite in Jerusalem, and he ended the punishment that had resulted from the census, David was still afraid to approach the tabernacle and the altar at Gibeon. David was afraid of God. Let's read in uh, 1 Chronicles 21. 1 Chronicles 21, picking it up in verse... 28, for the tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses made in the wilderness and the altar of the burnt offering were at that season in the high place at Gibeon. But David could not go before it to inquire of God, for he was afraid because of the sword of the angel of the Lord. So why was David afraid to inquire of the Lord at the tabernacle? And I think it's for the same reason any of us feel estranged from God. He wasn't walking with the Lord. He wasn't, at the very least, he wasn't walking consistently in the will of God. It seems like he was mostly ignoring God. And that's how we feel when we're not walking by the Spirit. If we're not walking by the Spirit and we're not in fellowship with God, we feel guilty and afraid. And that's how David felt. Now, um, before we go on, and we're almost done for today, um, but quickly about high places, turn to First Samuel 9, uh, Back to First Samuel chapter 9, verse 11. 1 Samuel 9, verse 11. Now, I realize as I was preparing for this study that when we read about high places, at least before the temple existed, it's not always a reference to pagan worship. Um, the Jews built altars to God on various hills that they called high places, and they sacrificed to Him there, and they burned incense to Him there. For example, in 1 Samuel nine eleven, As they went up to the hill, to the city, they found young maidens going out to draw water and said unto them, Is the seer here? And this is Samuel, meaning the seer is Samuel. And they answered them and said, He is, behold, he is before you. Make haste now, for he came today to the city, for there is a sacrifice of the people today in the high place. So this passage is in reference To Saul seeking Samuel, who's going to sacrifice in the high place to the Lord. So when we read in 1 Kings 3 3, if you want to go there real quickly, 1 Kings chapter 3. And I can't get the page here. 1 Kings chapter 3 Verse 3. When we read, and Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and burnt incense in high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. A thousand burnt offerings did Solomon offer upon the altar. So Solomon wasn't already backslidden into pagan worship at pagan high places, he was just worshiping where the people had built altars because God had not yet declared that He was setting His name permanently in Jerusalem. And so this is just something that I had misunderstood. And I don't know if others have understood it or misunderstood it. Maybe it's been clear to other people. But I had always associated high places with pagans. And and there are plenty, plenty of places in the Bible where the high places are definitely associated with pagans. But again, it seems like the pagans... As usual, just it's a cheap imitation of the real thing. There were high places that were legitimate that were unto the Lord, but then there were also high places that the pagans made. So, all right. Um, But now back to 1 Chronicles chapter 22. Go ahead from Kings to 1 Chronicles 22. And so David, instead of going to the high place at Gibeon to the tabernacle that Moses built and the altar there to make his offerings, he began to make his offerings in Jerusalem. He began to make his offerings right there on Mount Moriah where the Lord had stayed the hand of the angel and had answered David's prayer. And so let's read what David says in 1 Chronicles 22, uh, starting in verse 1. Then David said, This is the house of the Lord God, and this is the altar of the burnt offering for Israel. And David commanded to gather together the strangers that were in the land of Israel, and he set masons to hew wrought stones to build the house of God. And David prepared iron in abundance for the nails for the doors of the gates and for the joinings and brass in abundance without weight. Also cedar trees in abundance for the Sidonians and they of Tyre brought much cedar wood to David. And David said, Solomon my son is young and tender and the house that is to be builded for the Lord must be exceeding magnifical of fame and of glory throughout all countries. I will therefore now make preparation for it So David prepared abundantly before his death. Now we read earlier in 1 Chronicles 17, 4 that God had told David, you shall not build me a house. But here at the time, by this time when David is in some disfellowship with God, he begins the building project anyway. There can be no doubt that whatever we determine about the building of the temple, whatever we find that the scripture tells us about whether or not the building of the temple was in the will of God or was it outside the will of God, there can be no doubt that David's actions here are in disobedience to God's command. So I don't know if anyone here has ever built a house, but... The building of the house starts with the planning of the house and then the, organize, and the the bringing of the materials. That's all part of building the house. And David is doing that. So David is disobeying God. Um, David is not walking with God. David understood what was in God's heart prayed the perfect prayer, I'm convinced he was graced out by God at that point. But then he he didn't continue in walking in what was in God's heart. And I think we'll see as we finish the study probably next week that the story of David and Solomon and, and the building of the temple is really a story about their walk with the Lord. You can turn to 1 Corinthians 10 because this story is instructive of walking with the Lord as far as Solomon and David go. And the whole story of Israel is, instructed, is instructive of walking with the Lord. In fact, not just walking with the Lord, struggling with the Lord, the name Israel means struggles with God. That's literally what their name means. So their whole story is instructive of walking with the Lord and not walking with Him. 1 Corinthians 10. In 1 Corinthians 10, we can learn some valuable truths um, because Paul tells us about the history of Israel. We know that all Scripture is inspired by God, and Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, in the 11th verse, 1 Corinthians 10, 11, regarding the story of Israel, now all these things happened unto them for examples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. And that's us. As I said earlier, I'm convinced that uh, we're at the end of the age. We're not at the end of the world but there's not going to be any further scriptural revelation from God before the end comes. I'm convinced of that based on my understanding of the scripture. So we are the generation upon whom the ends of the world have come. And God has given us the scriptures, specifically the stories of Israel, as examples so that we can learn. So we are those upon whom the ends of the world are come, and even so, come Lord Jesus. All right, Um, we'll continue next week. Lord willing, may the grace of God go with you. May the peace of Jesus Christ be upon you all. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the example that you have recorded for us in the Scripture. We just ask that you would inspire us to understand your Word, Lord, and to teach each other the truth that is in Your Word more perfectly, Lord. We thank You for this opportunity and look forward to tomorrow and next week, whether we be here or with You. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.